Corinthians. Paul writing says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For if the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well... After spending... Considerable time studying this passage this week, I've come to several hard, fast conclusions. Conclusion number one, you guys aren't paying me near enough. <laughs> we have got to renegotiate this contract, huh? Because <laughs> this changes everything. Uh, this, is, this is one of these texts that I call a no-win text for the preacher. Because just as sure as the world, uh, somebody today is not going to like what I say. Uh, there are going to be some for whom I am too liberal. There are others for whom I'm going to be too conservative. There are some whom I am going to be too literal in my interpretation. There are others for whom I'm going to be too figurative. So let's just put it on the table today. We're probably not going to end up agreeing over this, but I hope we can pull some, some principles out that will help us in our pursuit of what it is that Paul has as his north star as he writes this particular text. Now, one thing that is certain that the scholars agree on about this text, scholarship is pretty much unified over the fact that this is probably the most difficult text in the entire New Testament. Would y'all agree with scholarship at that point? Okay. Uh, good. Uh, you know, Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly while there's still time. 
So I'm, I'm glad we at least agree on that. Now that might be the last point of agreement. I don't know, but here we go. So what do you do when you come to a text like this? Well, you break out your whiteboard. That's what you do. Because let me, let me uh, establish a few things that I think will help us as we move through this text and try to extract these eternal principles. That's what we're looking for. So let me take you to Hermeneutics 101 with Dr. Allen. Here we go. If I can keep this board from turning over, even the board wants to get out of here today. And I can draw something like this right in the center of this board. And I want you to look at this as if you were looking through a scope. And everybody knows when you look through a scope, what you see is this symbol, and these are called crosshairs. Now, if you have a target in mind, where do you want your target? You want your target right here. So this right here is our hermeneutical target. What we are trying to get at is the meaning of this text. Now, notice I said meaning. Meaning of this text, what it is that the Holy Spirit wants us to, to understand from this very complicated text uh, when he penned it through the Apostle Paul in the first century. He does not want us to come out here with what it means to you, what it means to me, but what he intends this text to mean and for us to understand from it. So, there are some things that we've got to plot up here in order to keep us in the center of the road. Now watch this, because a lot of people will completely dismiss this text. Here's what they do. They'll completely swipe it away and they'll say, all of this stuff refers only to a first century cultural context which only existed in Corinth. And they'll wipe it away as being completely cultural. So on this side of uh, this vertical axis, let's write the word, uh, let's see, cultural. Let me get my eraser because I've already messed up. Let's write the word cultural elements. And certainly there are some cultural elements in this text. Uh, let me just point out a few of these cultural elements. I mean, that's obvious when we look at it. We know that something's going on here culturally because when you read a text like this, you automatically understand that the original readers understood something that we're not getting. Do, do, you, do you have that sense when you read this text? That's part of the cultural dimension. So notice what we have here as, as cultural dimensions. Uh, we have Paul talking in verse 5 and 6 about a covered or a shaved head. Now, there were very cultural elements and dimensions that go around that. And you can get the way Paul builds this case that they understood something that we didn't. And then in verse number 6, but if a woman does not cover her head, do you see that word cover? Let's just lay this on the table right up front. That's not talking about a little cap. It's not talking about a bun of hair. It's not talking about a scarf. The original language is very specific. It means moving downward. So we're talking about a complete veil very much as a bride would wear today in a traditional white wedding dress with a veil. So just this issue of a veil is also very cultural. 
Now, notice some more cultural elements here. In verse number 14, Paul says something that is extremely strange. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Now, something's going on here that we don't get. Because here's the dealio. Nature does not teach us that, does it? Matter of fact, if, if it weren't for a razor, we'd all look like Colin Dollar, wouldn't we? <laughs> so if, if we don't have some mechanical intervention with our hair, men, uh, it's all going to be long. So there's something going on here culturally, so let's just mark that down for a little while. Uh, that's in verse number 14. Then in verse number 16, check out this, because when we're looking for cultural elements in a text, we're looking for something that would tie it very specifically to the culture and time of the first century. So check out verse number 16. Look what he says. If one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So he's talking about the churches in that first century time. So very much a, 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 a cultural issue. Now also behind this entire, this entire scene, you're going to find that we have culture as it relates to just coverings and, and not having coverings. We'll point out in just a little while. So on this side we have our cultural elements. What is the opposite of cultural elements that we must use to balance out a text like this and to find out exactly what, what's going on in it? Well, on this side, what we have is eternal or we could call them universal elements. And those things define when the author is pulling himself out of a first century context and making his case based on something that's not tied to time or culture. Now, do you see any of those in that text? Well, we sure do. Notice with me what it is that Paul says in um, verse number 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the man is head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. You see what he just did? He just used the Godhead as part of his argument. Now, would you agree with me that that's, e that's an eternal element here? So there's something going on that is eternal. We can't wipe this thing away as some guys do because they don't want to deal with it as being completely cultural. So the fact that Paul brings the Godhead into it. Now, notice what else he does in verse 8. He says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So how does this lift it out of the first century context? Because Paul appeals all the way back to what? To creation. So again, we're getting some universal dimensions now to balance out these cultural elements on one side. And then again, check this out. We can use the same one over here because the churches. Um, you know, you see that's plural? If Paul would have just said church, he would have located it completely at Corinth. But when he uses churches, he expands that. So now we're talking all of Asia Minor. Maybe all of the churches that he's planted. So in one sense, while that is kind of a universal dimension, in another sense, it's still a cultural dimension because where are all of these churches located in time? 
first century. So here we have one that goes both ways and can go on both sides. Alright, so now we're balancing this thing out. We're starting to see some universal elements, eternal elements, and some cultural elements. Now there's something else we've got to do to keep our crosshairs in the center of the target. We've got to look for theological conflicts. And this is where knowledge of theology and of the Word is indispensable. If I interpret this text a certain way, is it going to do harm to the entire scope of theology that is plainly revealed in God's Word in other places? So if we take a literal approach to this text and we say, Ladies, if you're going to lead worship in here, then Sandy and uh, Kalen and who else was in worship this morning? Tiffany and Haley who gave announcements. You'll find a veil back here behind the curtain. Y'all must put this on. I mean, that's the, if you're going to go literal, that's the only thing you can say. Right? Alright, so is that, if we interpret literally like that, does that pose any theological conflicts? Why, yes it does. Um, Randy read our scripture this morning. By the way, your hair is far too short. You can't read scripture anymore unless you grow that out or if you get Tiffany's veil. You see, that's a literal approach. Now, does that legalistic approach do harm to theology? Well, what was the text that Randy read this morning? You see, the plain teaching of Scripture is, is that an eternal God cares very little about outward realities. He cares very little about what type of fabric you have on and where you have it placed on your body. Because God doesn't look at the outside, but God looks at what? I mean, isn't that the plain teaching of that passage? Here's another thing. We know in the entire Pauline uh, corpus, that, that means in everything that Paul has written, do you know that Paul never, he never in any other place preaches to the outer man? What does Paul always preach to and apply his teaching? To the inner man. I can show you that over and over if time would allow us this morning. So would a literal interpretation of this do any harm to plain theological concepts in other places? You better believe it would. So I can't do that. And we can't do that with our interpretations because we'll have a big problem if we do that. So now, what is it that holds this bottom crosshair into place? It's what is known as Seems like you ought to have your mouth washed out with soap after saying a word like that, doesn't it, Jerry? That is epistemological contradictions. Now, how many of you know what epistemology is? And see, I, I wouldn't expect you to unless you sat somewhere in a, in a higher level philosophy class. So let's just put it like this. Let's just erase this big word epistemology and let's just put truth up there. 
Because that's what it means. It means truth contradictions, which is an oxymoron because truth does not have what? And you see, that's what the field of epistemology teaches us is that a true system or a so-called true system, if it has internal contradictions, then it is no truth system. Because by nature, truth cannot contradict itself. So if our interpretation causes the Bible to be in contradiction with itself, then guess what? We know our interpretation of said passage is totally off base. Now here's the thing. If all of these points of the crosshair don't hold tension, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to shoot high and right. If they don't hold tension, you're going to shoot low and left. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of folk who are high and right, low and left when it comes to this text. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I've got it 100% figured out, but we're going to use this to hold our target to the center. That's our goal, all right? So now let's check out these epistemological or these truth contradictions. If we accepted this thing at face value, would it indeed cause us to have truth contradictions? And I say absolutely it would. So now... Stop, stop it on pause right there and now let's get into our message because here's our subject. Our subject is culturally appropriate public worship. See, Paul's been dealing with private areas in the life of believers up till now. But now he shifts to public concerns in his letter to the Corinthians. And here he's talking about public worship. And it's all about being culturally appropriate in our public worship. Now, here's the thing. Is it possible for us to be culturally inappropriate in our worship? And it sure is. As a matter of fact, we are highly sensitive to this on the mission field. We strain every nerve as outsiders to be culturally appropriate. For instance, when I take a, a short-term team into a Quilombola village where we have a church established, one of the things that I'm going to say is, now men, here's what's culturally appropriate. You have on a pair of long britches. They can be like these. They can be jeans in nature. Uh, they can be uh, some type of closed toe shoe and just a golf shirt. That, that's all you need to wear and you'll be culturally appropriate. Now, ladies, I want you to know that this doesn't say anything about their theology. It says something about their culture that these Quilombola ladies are going to dress up when they come to church. They just do. They're going to slick up. So they're probably going to have on some type of dress, some type of skirt. And if you want to fit in, that's probably what you need to wear. As well. We have no problem in doing that at all for the gospel's sake. But it seems like when we get home, we could care less about our own culture and it's almost as if we tell everybody who don't like what we have on, hey, I got a word for you. And there it is. Whatever that means. I've just seen people do it. I don't know what it means. Maybe that was culturally inappropriate right there, huh? <laughs> Probably was, but here we go. <laughs> so why is it that we have this haughty attitude about our own culture but we have a very respectful attitude when we're in a foreign culture. Now, he's talking here again about public worship. That means when the church comes together. 
Now, why does Paul spend time on public worship? And can I say this to you? It's because there may be no greater witness to the reality of who God is than what folks see demonstrated in our public worship services. Now Paul's going to be very specific with that when he gets into chapter 12 through 14 when he's talking about spiritual gifts and here's what he tells the Corinthians. He just comes completely out and says, what if a lost man comes into your public worship service and y'all are all babbling in these ecstatic utterances y'all call tongues. He said, what is the lost person going to think? And he answers his question. He says, they're going to think y'all all mad. Huh? So it is true that our witness to the reality of who God is is put on public display in our public worship services. So let's just stop right there and go grow grace group for a minute. What is your public worship saying to other folk about God? Hey, for some of us, our public worship may be saying God's not worth the trouble. Because we only seem to get up and get at it in a very inconsistent pattern. To others it may say, you know, that God is frivolous. It, it, he really doesn't matter. Public worship is, make no mistake about it, public worship is a powerful witness. So check out what it is that Paul does here now as he talks about our worship being culturally appropriate. Because it ought to be. Hey, our worship here in Bonifay, Florida ought to be just as culturally, worship, uh, culturally appropriate as it is when we're in a Quilombo village in the, the backside of the jungle in Brazil. Because here's what it's about. Paul just taught us about putting other people first. So you see, I don't want to do anything in public worship that offends or causes someone else to stumble. Now, Jerry had a, a great solution for this this morning. He said, Preacher, you're always wondering why folk visit one time and never come back. He said, You keep preaching texts like this and you go answer your own question. <laughs> so maybe. It's all right if the word is offensive, but look, you don't want to be. And I don't want to be. And there are some things within our culture that people are sensitive to, and it would be sinful of us if we maybe weren't offending God in these actions, but we are offending other people. See what I'm saying? And that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. So let's check this out, and I'll finish this one when I get to the right spot in this outline. So culturally appropriate worship, what is it? Hey, you may want to put in parentheses, how should I act in church? And there really needs to be some instruction on that, doesn't it? I mean, do you remember the day when everybody just knew how to act in church because your mama done pinched all the blood out of your, out of your arm for misbehaving in church? Well, that was another culture. That was another time. Uh, now, we don't have those types of patterns for us to rely on. So, what does Scripture say? How should we act in church? And what does this passage say about public, uh, a, a culturally appropriate public worship? Number one, here's what it says. In public worship, men and women have equal duties. Equal duties. Now see, most folk approach this text and they say, Paul is being so chauvinistic here. And he's 
showing that women are inferior. And I'm going to submit to you through evidence in this text today that Paul's doing just the opposite. He is not being chauvinistic. He isn't saying that women are inferior. As a matter of fact, he's lifting the status of the female gender to a place that it never had been before in his day. Now look at this. This word that that translates men and women in our text is this very same word that's also translated husbands and wives. And I think it's appropriate in places for us to understand it in that context and in another context in this passage, it's appropriate to understand it in general as men and women. So follow me through this. Notice what he says. Look in verse number 4 and 5 as he tells us that in public worship, men and women have equal duties. Hey, you want to know why it is at Grace Church? And watch me. Man, in the church I grew up in as a little boy, this would have never happened. We would have never had Haley Sumner, or Haley Sumner stand up and give the announcements in the first part of the service. You know why? Because women don't do that kind of thing. We would have never had Randy read Scripture. We may have let the women sing, but that's probably about as far as it would have gone. But notice what this text says. I want you to see that the text is saying this and not me. Check out verse number 4 and 5. Every man who has something on his head, underline these two words, while praying or prophesying. You see that? Now check out the very next verse. But every woman who has her head uncovered while what? Now what are those? They are exactly the same. So don't you see right here Paul is giving an affirmation that it's all right for women to pray and to prophesy just as men pray and prophesy, but both men and women, husbands and wives, equally have to be culturally appropriate when they're doing it. Now, here's the deal. Why is it that grace will allow for females to take part in a worship service? Because if we interpret this literally as opposed to another text, we're going to end up with a truth contradiction. Now let me show you this. Turn with me to just turn over one page in Corinthians. You don't have to go far to find that some people, to chapter 14, to find that some people interpret Paul within the span of two chapters causing an internal contradiction and causing our true system, i.e. the Bible, to prove itself to be false. Far be it from me to ever do that. Now check out what he says in verse 14 and verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to be subject themselves just as the law also says. Now wait a minute. Let's go back to verse number 5 of chapter 11. Every woman who has her head uncovering while what? Now he's not talking about silent prayer. and He's not talking about speaking to herself when she prophesies. I mean prophecy back then they didn't have the New Testament so the Spirit of God gave gifts For men and women, he's sovereign over that. He wouldn't have given a female the gift of prophecy if he wanted her to keep her mouth shut. See what I'm saying? So here's the deal. We've got to take both of these passages of scriptures and interpret them, watch me, in light of their cultural context. And in light of their contextual, more than that, within the text. 
their contextual neighborhood or their contextual context. If not, we're going to cause a, we're going to cause Paul to be contradicting himself within the short span of three chapters. And if we cause the Bible to have contradictions within it, watch me. Somebody bring me a Bic lighter. Because if your Bible contradicts itself, son, you don't have the Word of God. Because God is truth. God's Word is truth. And if it contradicts itself, set it on fire. Throw what water you have left in your Yeti mug on the fire. And let's go to the house and forget it because we are without hope in this world. Now hear me. You'd be amazed how many top-line scholars do just this. You'd be surprised how many folk have no problem in causing God's Word to have contradictions. Men who we respect. I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to anyway. Men like John Phillips. He has no problem in causing the Bible to contradict itself. Men like John MacArthur. Men like John Piper. Men like John Wilson, however, do not do this. <laughs> Just in case you were seeing a pattern <laughs> that people who have the name John tend to shoot high and right, no. <laughs> John Wilson doesn't do this. Do you see what I'm saying? We're going to get to 14 in a couple of weeks. But hear me. Whatever we do with it, we can't make these two passages of Scriptures contradict. It is the interpreter's assignment, number one, to smooth out and put in their contextual neighborhood appropriately texts that seem to contradict because we cannot tolerate a contradiction within our truth system. Okay? Everybody, everybody kosher on that? And do you see how if we took a literal approach we would do that? So there's something going on here that tells me we've got to use our crosshairs to hone in on what it is that Paul's saying in this text. And I think the first general principle is this. In public worship, men and women have equal duties. Do y'all see that in this text? He says both of them are praying and both of them are what? Do you understand that's a big boost for females in Paul's day? Hey, that's a big boost for females in our day. Is it not? So check this out. And hey, by the way, Paul is not saying here that women are inferior. You know why I know? Because of the universal eternal elements. Look what he says in, in verse number 3 when he brings the Godhead into this. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. The only way we can say that woman is inferior to man is to say that Christ is inferior to God. Huh? And if we say that Christ is inferior to God, we probably ought to pack up everything we have and move to Utah because we'd make a real good Mormon. Or start meeting down at the Kingdom Hall. But let me tell you, in Orthodox Christianity... And with solid Bible understanding, we understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all co-equal. They're all God. None is inferior to the other. And Paul uses that here as 
his illustration. So you're going to tell me Paul's being chauvinistic and painting women as being inferior creatures? Absolutely not. And he uses the Godhead in order to buttress his argument. Check out number next. In public worship, men and women have equal duties. Hey, we can stop right there and say, Men, we've been successful with this passage so far, huh? Let's push on a little farther. In public worship, we should be distinct. Distinct. Now, I think Paul is talking here about our public appearance because it's all about coverings, right? And what we do. So distinct. Now look what he says in verse 4 and 5. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is the one and the same as the woman whose head is shaven. Now, watch this. Here's what Paul is saying. And it's against the backdrop of men in that culture wearing a head covering and ladies in that culture shaving their heads. So this is very cultural. But now here's what Paul is saying. Here's how it disgraces God. Have you ever wondered about that? Because, hey, watch me, guys. This goes a little bit farther than the southern gentleman common courtesy of taking your hat off when you come into a building. This is not what he's talking about. In that first century context, who was it that always wore a hat when they were in some type of cultic religious service? Who? Not the priest. Who said it? Jews. You say that, Jerry? Gold star, Jerry, come here to me. Look at you. Yeah, Jewish men would always wear what? That yarmulke. And here's what Paul is saying. We ought to be distinct. When you come to church as a born-again believer, you ought not look like you're still living under the law. Huh? Because God in Christ has fulfilled the law. He's freed us. And my golly, you don't have to wear that anymore to please God because God's pleased with you if you're in Christ and Christ alone. Man, I have great difficulty with people who think that whatever they wear makes God happy with them. There's only one thing that makes God happy with you. And that's being released from religion and trying to please God by what you wear or what you don't wear. The only way you can please God is by faith being firmly rooted and grounded in the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way we're distinct in worship. So what he's saying here is, man, look, don't come to church and look like you're still in Judaism. Tangled up in the law and legalism. Christ has set you free. Now doesn't that put a different spin on this altogether? Check out what he does with the woman. Culturally appropriate worship. We should be distinct. Here in verse number 5 he starts talking about the women. The women for, for the one who uh, prays with her head uncovered is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now what's the deal with the shaved head women in the first century. I mean, we don't have that problem today. How can we relate to that? It's first century culture. You see, almost every one of these metropolitan cities would have a temple to some type of false god. And most false god, as cults do today, are involved in some type of sexual perversion. Have you ever noticed that? All of them do. Uh, Their leader, their founder... You just go back far enough 
in every false religion and you'll find sexual misconduct and perversion at its very core. So here's what the women would do at those temples that were dedicated to gods of fertility and things like that. They would shave their heads and worshipers would have to indulge in certain type of activity with those shaved head prostitutes. So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Ladies, are he saying, men, when you come to church, you don't look like you're still living under the law of legalism as a Jewish man. And he's saying, ladies, when you come to church, by golly, you dress in such a way that you are distinctly Christian and you don't look like a temple prostitute. Huh? Now look here, can we apply that today? You better believe it. I have some men sometimes say to me, Pastor Richie, Will you say something about some of these gorgeous young ladies coming in here with shirts cut down to here and skirts up to here? And you know how hard it is for me to say something? Because here's the deal. Y'all know this issue with public worship. The number one reason why people give us why they can't come to church is what? Don't have anything to wear. So I don't want to touch that. Here's what I'd rather say. You let that young lady keep coming and let her get under the influence of the Word and Christ Himself will change her. Huh? I mean, just what, what we got to do sometimes. But here Paul's laying down a principle at least, and he's saying, men, don't look like you're a legalistic Jew, and ladies, don't look like you're a temple prostitute. He's saying, y'all got to find a happy medium. Y'all got to be distinct. And you see how that dishonors God when we come in and we're all legalistic, acting like what we do pleases Him, and that's why we have acceptance with Him, because what I put on this body... Son, he's not looking at my outside, praise be unto Jesus. He's looking at the condition of my heart. Check out, number next, i got to hurry. If I'm going to tackle this thing, if we're going to shoot it before the end of the service, huh? In public worship, men and women have equal duties. In public worship, we should be distinct, and he's talking about our appearance, right? And then number three, in public worship, we should do nothing that is disgraceful. Have you noticed he uses this word disgrace and shame all through this text and glory is its opposite? We, we either bring glory to him or we disgrace and shame him. So now what is he talking about? How is it that a woman disgraces, because here's where it may apply husband and wife. How is it that a woman disgraces her husband in public worship? Well, according to the context, when she shows up in church looking like a temple prostitute. Ain't that right? So that would be very disgraceful. We could be, it would be very distasteful. So men, if we have something on our head, we are disgracing because what we're saying basically is the cross wasn't good enough. I've got to do something to help find acceptance in God and I find acceptance in what I wear. Find acceptance in God. and what and Son, that's a disgrace. to get. That is a spit in the face of the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So that's where Paul's talking about being disgraceful. Man, if, if Heather was one of those that dressed like that, it would, be a, it would reflect on me, would it not? Folk began saying, Pastor, why is your wife dressing like a dang prostitute? And to be a disgrace. So Paul's just speaking practically here. Now, check out number next, because we've got to get on through these things. In public worship, men and women have equal duties. We should be distinct. We should do nothing that is disgraceful. 
And then in verses 7 through 10, we finally get into some new ground here. In public worship, we should do nothing that is distractive. Distractive. Now, look in verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. You see those two words? Image and glory of God. Now look, but the woman is the glory of man. What word did he leave out in there? That couplet. He, used that, he left out image, did he not? Here's another way Paul is elevating the status of women. If he would have said in there that woman is the image and glory of man, that would have been very demeaning to women, right? Because all you are is a reflection of me. He had to leave it out in order to make the affirmative statement that women are also made in the image of God. If he had said it any other way, he would have undercut that. So women, yeah, look at all the compliments that Paul has given you here. He has already said you have equal duties. That's highly complimentary and that elevates your status. He has already said that you're made in the image of God, co-equal with man. And now he's going to say, you are gorgeous. That's what he means here. You're beautiful. Hey, does anybody have a problem in saying that the female gender is the fairer sex? Does anybody disagree with that? Man, I, don't, I mean, all you got to do is, let me have any of you ugly men stand up next to your wife. And here's my question. How did that happen? That's proof that there's a God. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, <laughs> it couldn't have been your truck, son. <laughs> huh? All right. <laughs> so now he's saying, look at here, you are the glory of man. Do you know what that means? That means you are the beauty, you are the shining radiance of man. And look what he says. Check this out. Let me go a little bit farther with this. He says that women, uh, w- uh, the woman or the wife is the glory of the man. Now look in verse number 10. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now I wish he wouldn't have said that last phrase. Because of the angels. And I want to tell you there are a ton of ideas about what Paul made there. So since we already have a pot full of them, let me go ahead and give you one more to stir in the pot, can I? Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when the angels, the seraphim, and the cherubim were worshiping God and they have six wings? What's the Bible say they do with their wings? With two they flew, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their lower extremities. Now do you know why they did that? Because that was a public worship service. It was going on in heaven. And those cherubs and seraphs that were all around the throne, they didn't want anybody else who was looking to be distracted by their grandeur. Because they're some marvelously beautiful and wonderful creatures. So in humility, they would cover up. And can I say, this is what Paul is saying to you ladies. He's saying, y'all are so dang beautiful. Y'all are such the fairer gender... Until if you're not careful, 
There are going to be some men who get distracted in worship service because they're not focusing on God. They're looking at you. Now, men, can we just be honest? No, we can't because y'all get in trouble. You're sitting next to your wife. But you know, that does happen sometimes. That's why we've got to be very discreet and make sure. And I heard just the other day, one of these, 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 uh, what do you call these pom-pom girl cheerleaders? She's a cheerleader at LA. You see that? See, I, that wasn't very demeaning. I'm just trying to get this word in my head. It was a cheerleader at LSU that she has got some very, she's got a web, she's a millionaire. Because she got, it was on the news. She got some website where she has all these poses and they interviewed her on the news because the college don't know how to handle this. They've never had this type thing happen before. And here's what she said. She said, my website is very tasteful. Even though I'm in negligee, it is very tasteful. And if someone looks at me half nude and they turn that into something sexual, that's not my problem, that's their problem. Lady, you're wrong. Huh? Now, I understand what she's saying. But at the same time, if she was a believer, that would be wrong. Because anything that I do that causes somebody else to stumble, we just came out of that in chapter number 10. That's wrong. Is that right? So in public worship, listen, we should do nothing that's distractive. And look, this goes for me too. I'll never forget when Heather and I were in seminary and we went to this church and we had a minister of education. And that dude was just a psycho. He'd come to church sometime in a silk purple suit. And he would sit on the platform in front of 2,400 people and I couldn't hear what the preacher was saying because his suit was so loud. <laughs> I wanted to say, you ding dong, get that suit off. What's wrong with you? <laughs> he didn't have a country boy car, Jerry, I promise you. <laughs> he did not. You see, that's distractful. And we should do nothing that's distractive. Now let's just talk about this for a minute because the context here, Paul's talking, about, talk, Paul's talking about women distracting folks with their beauty. But there's a whole lot of other ways that folk get distracted in church, right? Man, listen. It's what ought to be one of your goals. If your witness and public worship and our collective worship is important, then we ought to make sure that we do nothing that's distractive. And can I say to you, if you're an old man like me, <laughs> and you're a prostitute the size of a basketball, <laughs> and you got to go to the bathroom about every five minutes, sit on the back. Now, there's nobody here that meets that standard. I'm just, let me just qualify and say, no men here do that. I'm just using that as an example. Huh? Because here's what happened. If you're sitting up here with Katie, and we're involved in a worship service, and it's a very serious moment where God is focusing the attention on Him and what He's doing, and you get up because you're about to wee-wee in your britches, you just killed it. And now nobody's looking at God anymore. Nobody's thinking about God. They're wondering what the heck you're doing. And can I say to you as a preacher, I can preach through anything. You will never notice it get to me. But when somebody gets up and goes, I might as well quit talking. You know why? Because there's 250 eyes that leave me, that leave God and go to that person. And then folks sometimes go to the bathroom 
And instead of being discreet and non-distractive and just coming in sitting on a back, pew, a back chair back there with Job, guess what they'll do? And everybody in the building is. You see what I'm saying? So no matter what it is, the principle holds. We can't be distractive in public worship. Now that don't mean you can't bring your children in. I mean, there's some things, you know, that folk can tune out, but there's other things they can't, like a cell phone, like somebody putting on a sideshow up here on the front row. You ever notice that? When a sideshow is taking place up here? Well, that, that would be like the seraphim angels in a worship service with God standing up and pushing their chest out and making themselves the focal point. And man, it's a very serious thing. Check out what Paul says next. In public worship, do nothing that is distractive. In public worship, humility should be on display. Look what he says in verse number 10. Therefore, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, we done talked about the angels part. That's the distraction part. But look, he's talking about a symbol of authority. So what does that mean? That means in public worship, our humility should be on display. Do you know of anybody that can get in the presence of God and strut like a banny rooster? I know some folk who do. But I don't know anybody who should. Because son, in God's presence, we all, at very best, we all ought to get under the rug and say, fall on me, sky, and cover me from the face of the one who sits on the throne. Huh? So, folk ask sometimes, Pastor Richie, why do y'all have... Ladies teach Bible study. She has a symbol of authority on her head. Here, here's the thing about this. Y'all all know Katie teaches every now and then because we are committed to developing the spiritual gifts in ladies who are going to impact this world for Jesus Christ. And we've got ladies here who are training to be missionaries. And isn't it hypocritical of us to send them over there to do it, but we won't let them do it here? Yeah, it's the same way with these men, these Johns I named you that make the word contradict itself, all of them say that women, here's where they come down now, they say that women ought to have a head covering on in public worship. But go to any of the church they pastor. None of them do it. Don't preach this, son, if you ain't going to practice it. If you're going to be stupid and make errors in hermeneutics, you better be man enough to back it up in your practice. You see what I'm saying? So here's the thing. When Katie started teaching and we started equipping her, and my goodness, she can do it. Would you agree with me? I would stand up here and say this. Look, y'all know our stance on this. Katie is not the pastor of this church. I am. And as long as she is under my authority, I want us to learn and I want us to profit from the spiritual principles that she's going to bring forth from the text. She's not teaching her authority. She's under my authority, but she's teaching the authority of God's Word. But now notice, if Katie came up here and she started strutting and she started making authoritative demands on your life, I'd pull out my pastor shepherd's hook and I'd hook her and say, come on, you're done. I mean, there's, there, is there a few things worse than somebody who's arrogant and who's prideful, especially somebody as pretty as Katie? That would not be very becoming of her, would it not? So as long as she's under my authority... And as long as she's teaching the authority of God and not prophesying some crazy stuff that Jesus is coming on March 15, 2027, that type of hocus-pocus stuff, 
I don't see any conflict with what Paul is saying here. Check out number next, and I'm done. No, I've got two more. In public worship, I hear them hollering back there. We are dependent on one another. We're dependent on one another. Look what Paul says. He says, uh, uh, where where does he do that? Look with me in, in verse number 12. For as woman originates from man, so also man has his birth through woman, and all things originate from God. Interdependence. Hey, I want to tell you, a woman worshiping can draw me into a spirit of worship sometimes. Huh? And it's the same way. We're dependent upon one another. There's no hierarchy here. Check out next. I'm hurrying. In public worship, we should not be dissentious. Dissentious. You can also, also acceptable as dissentious. However you want to say it and spell it. But you know what it means? Here's what it means. Look in verse number 16. If one is inclined to be contentious. You see that word contentious? It means to dissent. It's made up of two Greek words. One of them is philo. The other one is ekinos. It means to love strife. To love strife. Do you know anybody just loves strife? And by golly, they keep it stirred up all the time. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, if, he says, if anyone is contentious, look, this is culturally appropriate. He says we have no other practice. So now what is he talking about here? If someone is dissentious, that means with common perception. Somebody is dissentious from what is culturally appropriate. And notice what he does here. i got to say this real quick. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? You see that word nature? What he's really talking about here is the nature of things, the way things are. So I think that moves us out of the realm of whether we have a haircut or whether we don't. It moves us into the how things are generally understood. Hey, do y'all remember the hippie movement? What was the hippie movement marked by? Long hair on who? And what did that long hair symbolize? Rebellion? I'm disagreeing with everything in society against the establishment and the mark of it was long hair. You see, that was dissensuous. That was being a rebel. Now we may not have that today. Watch this, I haven't prompted either one of these. I might get in trouble. Colin, if a young man comes to BCF and makes application to be a student at BCF and he's got long hair, you have a problem with that? You don't have any problem with that at all, do you? Hold that thought. Hey, Mr. Monk. (laughs) Me and you in the same boat here, huh? If you're an employer and a man comes in and he's got long hair, does that that give you any opinion of him right off the bat? See, there you go. You see what I'm saying? This is cultural. This is generational. So, yeah. uh, And Paul is saying this about us. He's saying... If it's going to offend somebody, men, then you don't do it. Huh? He says, you don't be dissensuous with common perception just because you can. If you've got a spirit in your heart that says, hey, I ain't nothing wrong with the Bible, and by golly, I can do it, I don't care who likes it, God's not pleased with you. It has nothing to do with the length of your hair. It has to do with the attitude of your heart. And God is not pleased with that attitude. So notice, number one, he says, we shouldn't be dissensual with common, perce- with common perception and finally, with common practice. I mean, what is normal practice? Well, we know in our culture what churches normally do. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Notice, he, he doesn't give an authoritative word from God. He refers to the practice of all the churches. We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. 
So he's given us some real good guidelines here, guys, about what is culturally appropriate in public worship. Now look, we put a crosshair on the board and we held it in tension with a whole lot of different exegetical principles. And by golly, I think we're getting at the heart of it. And if we're off, if we're off, get this, it's not on you, it's on me. You see, that's the pastor's responsibility. So just know that if you disagree with this very peripheral issue, it's not on your head, it's on my head. And that's the weight, that's the responsibility of being the pastor. And if a pastor's not willing to accept those responsibilities, then he may ought to find another job. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to shoot and hit right in the middle of the target. How is God pleased with me? And here it is. It's not by anything you have on or anything you don't have on. It's by your relationship through faith with Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, would you give us the ability to adjust our lives to it by faith? Because we know that you were as equally concerned about our public worship as you were with those believers in the first century. So God, would you hold us in the center of those crosshairs because we're really talking about what people think about you, about your glory, and about folk responding to you. So I pray today, God, that we would adjust our attitudes wherever they need adjusting, and we would by faith walk in the light of your word, and we would be pleasing and not disgraceful unto you. I pray for those who are here today, and this is the church where they want to assemble, and this is the family with which they want to worship publicly. I pray, God, you would call them by faith to make that decision today. I pray for those who are here today that have been depending upon what they do to please you rather than their relationship with Christ. I pray today, God, that you would call them to yourself. God, whatever you have said today, may we respond in a way that's pleasing and honoring brings glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Dr. John Wilson's on one side. Colin Dollar's up here on one. If God has said something to you today and you need to, by faith, adjust your life to him, these men love you.